Uh, if you got your Bible, we're, we've been, uh, we're in the book of Joshua, so we're going to Joshua 2. Turn there. Um, it'll also be up on the screens in a little bit. We're going to read. We got quite a bit of a reading this morning. It's a fascinating story, Joshua 2. And um, so buckle your seatbelt for that. But it's just such a good story. I just feel like we have to read it. And um, if maybe you weren't here last week or, um, and, and also too, if you're kind of just new to exploring Christianity or exploring the Bible as a whole, maybe Joshua as a book is unfamiliar to you, that's okay. I understand that. So just to kind of give it a little bit of context, when you do narrative, it's, it's helpful to have a little bit of context. But we, so we're exploring the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. And Joshua is, a, is kind of a, he's like a soldier. He's a general. He's the successor of Moses. Moses was this fantastic leader that God appointed and called uh, to uh, bring his people out of Egypt. And if you can remember, and we kind of talked about this last week, but um, really what you got going on in the storyline of the Bible is that um, the Bible is really one big, long, connected story all pointing to Jesus. And so and it really all begins with us being cast out of the garden, out of rebellion and lack of trust. And, and, and you've got this idea that the, the, this, really this idea that the, the Bible is trying to get across um, through various ways, through narrative, through poetry, and through wisdom, literature, all these different forms. But they're all trying to really tell you the same thing. And that is God loves you. He's for you. He's coming for you. He's pursuing you to bring you to a place of rest with him. He wants to dwell with you. That's what he wants. And um, that's the theme throughout the scripture. And um, this really took picked up when in Genesis, when he made this promise to this guy named Abraham that many of you know about. And um, he, this guy, Abraham, was going to have uh, descendants and they were going to become a nation. And this nation was supposed to reflect the beauty and the glory of God. That's Israel. And uh, they don't do it well at all. Um, they, they have a, a terrible time with that, just like we have a hard time following what God wants us to do, but they're, we're supposed to reflect what it means to rest with God and what it means that God is good and that he's for us and that he has a way um, that is uh, flourishing. And so that people in the Old Testament, they were um, that idea of rest is really this idea of the promised land. And so they've been coming out of Egypt. They've They've miraculously come out of Egypt and they, because of, again, a lack of trust and rebellion, they've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and and it's really quite sad what that generation had to undergo because of their lack of trust. And then finally Moses dies, and then you've got this leader, Joshua, uh, who takes over. And that's where the book of Joshua picks up. And so Joshua and these people are now, the second generation is, is on the banks of the River Jordan, and they are about to enter into the Promised Land, this land of rest that God wants to give them. And But the reality is this land that they're going to enter into, uh, this land of Canaan, is, is full of enemies. People that have rejected God, uh, people that have kind of constructed their own gods, and they've, they've kind of filled their culture and their lives full of strange and perverted acts of sexual idolatry, child sacrifice, all sorts of just strange things. And so they really oppose God as a whole, and they oppose these people. And so they're entering into enemy territory. And so... Um, the story of Joshua is also really a story about judgment and that, that, that God has been patient with these people, um, hoping and, and pleading with them to change, but they have not. And so we're on the brink of that. And so they're about to go in to a scary place, a place where there will be enemies. 
and they're called to trust God, and they're on the brink of it. Now let's pick up there and read from Joshua 2, starting in, at the very beginning, verse 1, and we'll read all the way through. Here's what it says. Uh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, uh, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, it's true, the, the, the men came to me, but I, I did not know where they were from. And, and when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out, and I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Ah, uh, but she actually brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men uh, pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to, to the men, I, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will do kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. And the men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have, give, you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down and you shall gather into your house, your father and mother and your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who was with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. And they departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. 
that the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. This is the word of the Lord. You ever, I know you do, but do you ever come across things in life, like ordinary life moments where you, extreme paradoxes or phenomenons, um, just these really complex things in, in nature around you or in the world around you that just kind of make your brain cramp when you try to like wrap your mind around how it works. You ever come across things in life where on the surface it seems simple, but then you realize this is really, really complex. Like an example would be like, and these are trivial examples, but they, they fascinate me because my mind is like this, like a spider silk, you know, it's this, it's this tiny little substance that spiders use to make their webs so, so soft, so fragile. You're, you know, a little child can break a, a spider web, but actually when you measure it, you know, it's tensile strength, it's density, it's uh, weight to strength ratio, it's stronger than alloy steel. It's fascinating, right? How is that possible, <laughs> you know? Or like take something as simple as breathing, which I'm obsessed with breathing lately. And so I'm reading all about breathing. So you're probably gonna hear all sorts of things in my sermons on breathing. But, you know, breathing is this thing that, you know, in a sense, you're like, oh, I breathe because I need oxygen. Well, yeah, yes, that's true. But actually your urge to breathe is initiated primarily not because you need oxygen, but because you need to expel CO2. I can prove it to you. You ready? Take a big, deep breath and hold it in. What's the first thing you're going to do when you let it out? You have to expel, not breathe in more oxygen. It's because CO2 toxifies your blood and throws off your pH level. So your, your urge to breathe is much more about getting rid of the toxins of CO2. I could go on, but I won't. But these sorts of things, you know, or like you take the, don't even get me started on the universe, the fact that it's constantly expanding, where is it going to go? You know, these sorts of things, when you think about these sorts of things, and there's so many more that I could give that I like to think about or read about, they just are like, once you start to explore them beneath the surface, you go, oh my gosh, I don't, there's this, this world, the way it operates is far more fascinating than I had any idea. And it's things like this, you know, they just don't make sense at a glance and you have to dig into them for them to ever even remotely compute. Well, the reason why I'm talking about things like phenomenon or paradoxes or, or, or crazy ironies that you come across in life is that uh, when, when you read Joshua 2, the story of Rahab, scholars like to point out that at least within the narrative structure of the book, it doesn't make sense why it's there. It does not make sense. Uh, you didn't trouble reading it. I didn't trouble reading it. You, matter of fact, many of you are probably familiar with it. You really love the story. But on biblical literary terms in and of itself, it's strangely placed and it doesn't need to be there. My point is that, that scholars like to point out that 
um, when you finish chapter one, there are, you know, the promise is given to Joshua and he's about to cross the Jordan and enter in and everything is set and ready to go. Uh, in terms of the like literary flow, it really should just jump right into chapter three. Chapter two is a complete interruption. It's a tangent and they, they've struggled to understand how did it get there? It doesn't flow naturally, which naturally leads to the question, <laughs> Why did the author put it there? Because uh, that's the question you were asking, right? You know, is there a specific reason that the author sees fit to slow way down and give all these little details about this woman, this prostitute? Well, naturally, you're probably saying, yes, of course, there's got to be a reason the author did this. And, and, and you're, you would be thinking, right. And when you think about it and you really lay your mind and your heart to why the author would put this right in front of what is coming to be the battle that everybody knows. I mean, if you talk about the book of Joshua to anyone, what's the one story in Joshua that they know about? Jericho, the battle of Jericho. You know, if you, maybe some of you, you read your kids like, a, like a, a child Bible, like the Jesus storybook Bible. There's only one story in the whole of Joshua that she covers. It's Jericho, which I disagree with Sally Lloyd-Jones. I'm like, you should have included Rahab. You know, but that's the reality. But why does the author place then this right in front of it? It's actually really important. Really, really important. Um, the novelist F. Scott Fitzgerald said that the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. Okay, so... Well, here's what I would say. If your heart and your mind are going to function properly in the book of Joshua, at least according to how the author wants you to function in the story, you need Rahab. Or you're not going to actually understand what God is doing in Joshua, the book of Joshua. And really, I would say the Bible as a whole. You need Rahab. It's critical. Rahab, if you look at her, if you hear her, if you, if you really think about her, her, her life, her circumstances, and I get it, some of that requires imagination and conjecture, but if you really meditate upon her, she's forcing you to confront two opposing realities, isn't she? She's a harlot and she's a faith hall of famer. Just memorize that. She's a harlot and a faith hall of famer. That's how the Bible portrays her. That's something the Bible's doing all the time. It's two opposing realities, two things that just seem strange. It's like, how is this possible? Life is simpler than this, right? No, it's not. It's really complex. And because God is really complex. The God that we know in this Bible and the way he operates in the world is really complex. And it takes a minute to figure it out. And it's saying, the Bible's always saying, stop being so simple-minded about God. He's not simple. Rahab is a member and a contributor to the evil that within the land of Jericho that God has been patient with for centuries. And he's now coming to judge. Make no mistake, he's coming to judge it. That's why Joshua is a book that people don't like to read. It's full of violence. You know, all the skeptics love to grab a hold of the book of Joshua and say, look at this, explain this. Well, I would say, well, you just don't know about Rahab. 
You've never explored her. I say a member and a contributor because, as I just mentioned, and we're told right up front by the author, right in the first verse, that she's a prostitute. A lot of people will be like, no, oh, she's an innkeeper. Well, maybe, but she's also a prostitute. She's a prostitute. And yet, make no mistake, and this is really critical, for the author that's writing the story, Rahab, is clearly the hero of the chapter. That's why I wanted to read you the whole chapter. She's the hero of the chapter. The author makes, he writes it in such a critical, careful way to, to show you. I'll give you one little proof of that. What are the spies' names? They're not named. That's a literary technique for the author. The author's saying they're not important. Don't pay attention to them. They play minor roles in this. Notice how much Joshua is mentioned in all of chapter two. He's barely mentioned. Rahab's front and center the whole way through. That's what makes her special. She's the one undergoing this incredible scrutiny of the king's guard, and she's putting herself in immense danger by fooling the king's guards, right? She's the one who has the cleverness to hide the spies and give them time and a way of escaping. I mean, she concocts this whole little plan, and it's brilliant. She's the one who doesn't just sacrifice for herself, but, but, but she sacrifices for these two spies, and she sacrifices for her whole immediate and extended family. And even more, she's the one who makes the incredible and shocking confession about God, his history of actions, the things that he's done in the past on behalf of his people, and she's convinced, she's just utterly convinced that he's going to continue to lead his people. You know, her confession, in terms of just one stretch of a monologue, is one of the longest, in narrative form, one of the longest confessions of God in all of the Bible. The harlot. If you tune in carefully to some of the things she's saying, you see that the author is, is, is being very careful to highlight how clearly she sees. You know, the Israelites, you'll get this idea once you read through, through the first five books of the Bible, you'll start to realize, oh, the Israelites, man, they just, you would think that they would see God clearly by now, but they don't. And yet you have her, and it, the author's trying to show you, here's this consummate outsider, screw up and failure, who, who strangely seems to see God so clearly. And, and verse 11, she says, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Well, that doesn't strike you as somehow significant, except that that is a basic direct quote of what the Israelites were called to believe all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter four. Here it is, I'll show it to you. Verse 39, know therefore today and lay it to your heart that what? The Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. She's quoting their Old Testament texts. She's quoting promises. Rahab's been listening to the story. She's been listening to the culture that she's living in. And she's got enough courage. And we explored that last week. She's got enough courage to, to reevaluate all of her allegiances and her priorities. And furthermore, you know, it's her own words about the town gossip that encourages the spies. 
She, she, she's the one that is kind of gives them their rah-rah speech to Joshua when they return. I don't know if you noticed it, but at the very end in verse 24, when they go back to Joshua, this is what they, <laughs> I think this is funny, but they say to Joshua, quote, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Those are not their findings from their clever reconnaissance. Those, that's an exact quote from her. <laughs> She's the hero of the story here. So what you're seeing here in Rahab isn't just someone who changes her allegiances to God and turns from an old life. That, that is true, and that's there. And you would be fine if you gathered that and you said, look, this is an example of what it means to, to, to have faith. It, it means to, to listen, to pay attention, to think about God, what he's done, what he's promising, what he wants to do, and, and to make confession of God, and then to, to renunciate your former life and to say, I want to turn and repent. And all of that's there. She's a model of faith, all of that. But that's not all she's doing. She's not just, what you're seeing in her isn't just someone who changes her life, who who opens herself up to God, you're also seeing someone who God strategically uses to encourage his people to go after what he's telling them to go after. That's why on the, it's on the front end of the battle. They still were probably very nervous. And so, and maybe just as important, it's meant to further fill out this picture, I think, of the kind of people God is calling his people, right? I mean, you've got this, this incredible irony is not lost in the New Testament, you know? And if you know your New Testament, you know that this is true. I mean, think about this. Do you know that Rahab is mentioned more times in the New Testament than Joshua is? That's fascinating, right? That's why I like Hebrews 11. That's why I called her the harlot and the hall of famer because in Hebrews 11, which if you're familiar with that chapter, it's the hall of fame of faith people, right? It's all of these people that have had shown great faith. And guess who's in there? Rahab. Rahab is mentioned in Hebrews 11. Or James chapter 2, verse 25. He's talking about faith and works and how they work together and how here, you want to, James, like you want an example of someone who experienced expresses real faith by real works and all of that? Rahab, he says. Be like Rahab. Not to mention, of course, if you don't skip the rather, I think it's important, but I get it, the rather dry genealogy that Matthew offers the very beginning of his gospel account, right? You will find whose name in there? Rahab. 26 generations, but she is a great, 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 great grandmother of who? Of Jesus. She is brought in to the family of Jesus in a very strategic way. Things like this are possible. They're strange, mysterious, unexpected, paradoxical even at times when you think about them ironic, all of these things, but they are possible in the story that the Bible's telling. Why does God do this? Why? He could have started off the book of Joshua in a different way. He could have used different people. Why work this way? Well, that's, friends, is, I think that's the question 
the author is trying to put in your mind as you read the story. That's why I said you need Rahab to understand the book. That, that, that's what the author's trying to do is he's saying, pay attention because you're about to come across some really hard, nasty, gritty things in this story. There's going to be a lot of death in this story. And if you're not careful, you're going to be really simple-minded about who God is. He's actually trying to, I think, highlight uh, what I would call the divine complexity of God. I think that's the point of chapter two. That's why he's placed it in the story, meaning, and here's what I'm really all I'm trying to get at this morning, that God is incredibly holy. He's more holy, more pure than we can possibly imagine. And you'll see that in this book through judgment. You'll see that in things that are just hard for us to like wrestle with judgment of God because sin is this horrible thing and there is evil to be dealt with. And so, yes, in one sense, God is incredibly holy, but he's also equally gracious. And when you put them together, it just confounds you. How is this possible? Because I'm not and you're not capable of holding these things to the degree that God can hold these things. Incredibly holy and just and incredibly gracious and merciful and kind. And so the simple point that I'm just trying to make here this morning is that God's grace will always be as mysterious as it is kind and loving. That it should always expand your horizons and make you realize, uh, I don't know if I fully can grasp his graciousness. I like how the British writer G.K. Chesterton put it. He said, the riddles, the riddles of God are more satisfying than the solutions of man. God is not simple. Get him out of the box that you've put him in. It will not only help you with God, it will help you with each other. If you've been in church for a long time or you've been walking a long journey of believing in God, hopefully God's divine complexity still confounds you. My hope is, is that it still gives you pause and causes you to realize you're totally out of depth here in wrapping your minds around who he loves and who he's using. And if it, because if it doesn't, if you lose that sense of being shocked by his grace, being confounded by his grace, if you, if you lose that, and it is easy over time to lose it, friends, let me tell you, been Christian a long time and I've been in church my whole life and it is easy to lose over time and if you lose it if you if you stop being confounded by the complexity then the 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 just the sheer size and and breadth and depth of God's grace if you lose that you start drifting towards putting God in this night tidy box where there are good guys and there are bad guys and if your ego is anything like my ego, you are always one of the good guys, aren't you? Always. But the story the, the Bible is telling, and the reason why the Bible is so careful about putting stories like Rahab in front of you, is it's trying to say, oh, be careful, friend, when you think you're only one of the good guys, and that the bad guys are over there. Because God is deliberately trying to say, you better stay on your toes. 
be very careful. It's not that simple. And that doesn't mean that we should be filled with a wave of anxiety and, and a wave of guilt. It's instead, it's meant to say, hey, lay ourselves before God and say, God, I don't have quite the imagination I need. Provide it. Give me eyes. Give me curiosity. Give me patience. Give me slowness to judge. I would say that this story reminds you to slow down in rushing to judgment and drawing lines and categories for people. It, remind, it reminds you um, when it comes to God, there is always more going on <laughs> beneath the surface than you initially see. And I would say this, if you know, maybe you're in a place where you're new to the faith or you're still skeptical of the faith or you're, you're still wrestling with things, or maybe you've been around for a long time, but you're just secretly underneath, you have this feeling of deep uncertainty about where you're at with God, you know, or because of your past or even your current circumstances and, or you just feel stuck in your own particular faith journey because these things just happen. They happen to everybody. And I would just say, if that's where you find yourself, I would say this. I, I think Rahab's story is meant to remind you uh, that when it comes to God, your past is not the real issue. Your past is never going to be the issue for God. And Rahab is proof of that. The real issue is this, that is your trust in God's holy grace, is it overriding your circumstances and the simple-mindedness of the culture around you? Is it overriding it? I mean, because think about the story. Think about, think about this. Think about what Rahab was risking in her decision. Now, we're going to step outside of the text and just use our imaginations for a bit, right? So think about what, what this was like for Rahab. Think about the decision that she was do, making and, and, and the risk that she was undergoing to make this decision. She walked away from, and I know what I'm about to say, she walked away from a career. Now, I, I know that that career isn't one that we would recommend, and the Bible does not recommend it or commend it, but she's walking away from a livelihood. She's, she's walking away from a former community, assuming that she had one. She walked away from everything that she had previously known in Jericho. But it's not just that what she was leaving, but also think about what she was entering, right? Later in Joshua chapter 6, we'll learn that not only was Rahab and her family saved, but that we're explicitly told that she remained living in Israel the rest of her days. Now, what must that have been like for her? What was that like? Imagine the complexity and the dynamics going on there, right? The former prostitute from the enemy of God, the people that he came down on. And she's in now, right? It's like in Rahab serving the children's ministry. I mean, these are really, these are difficult things. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not offering simple answers. I'm just simply saying, think about the complexity of this. Does Rahab end up being a deacon in the church? Did people embrace her? 
Was it just the New Testament people that embraced her? But the actual people in real time were like, listen, well, we understand that she made a confession, but there's consequences. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly. It's really complex, but imagine that that, did she ever shed herself of her former identity? Was she ever able to say, hey, this is who I used to be, but I'm not her anymore. I'm someone new. And maybe she had to get up every day and say it. I don't know. But she had to shirk that simple-mindedness of her culture and the way people categorize and boil things down and make it so simple and neat and tidy so that we don't have to do with, deal with nuance or like com the complexity of God and what he likes to do in people. I'm sure all of that was swirling, but here's the reality. She chose a life, at least initially for sure, of total vulnerability because she was willing to bet on the power and the grace of God. And that's what it is required of all of us. To really bet your life and to bank your life on the, on the complex grace of God is always going to, at times, put you in places of incredible vulnerability, places where the, you, can, you can get hurt. And this is what she has done. Somewhere underneath, Rahab had a faith that believed that God isn't just holy and just, but that he's equally gracious in ways that we can't fully expect or even express. And my gut tells me that is, that is what God mysteriously was working out inside of her so that he could express himself to her and to us. You know, I think God is expressing himself to us through Rahab. Because it's like, well, is Rahab making all of the decisions? Well, I don't know. You tell me. Why did the spies go to her house? Who pursued her? Did, did she pursue God or did God pursue her? Which one happened first? Well, wh what about you in your life? You know something interesting, Rahab? Her name? It's almost comical. You know what her name means? <laughs> Broad and spacious. Name that, no one are you going to name your kid that probably. But in Hebrew, that's what it means. Broad and spacious. Now, here's the thing. In Exodus, when God makes the promise to Moses to lead his people into a new land, you know what the new land is called? Broad and spacious. Something tells me that God was moving by grace long, long, long before anybody made any decisions, including Rahab. And I think the same thing is true in your life. I know it's true in my life. I look back and I go, oh, wait, I, I wasn't, ex I mean, yes, I made these decisions, but oh my goodness, he was already at work. He was already moving. But Rahab isn't just a cool story in the Old Testament, you see. She's, she's meant to also prepare your mind and heart for the new for the New Testament. You see, if you, don't, if you don't see Rahab, I would argue you don't see Jesus. That, that you know, these, these stories that you come across in the Old Testament, like the book of Joshua and like a character, like a Rahab, as a whole, what you have to understand is, is that the, the Bible storyline is actually just trying to further fill out and build the portrait of Jesus. 
so that you can see him more clearly and understand him more clearly. So if you don't see Rahab, you don't really see Jesus. More importantly, you're, you're never really going to open yourself up to really knowing and experiencing Jesus. I can give you an example. Go to Luke 19 if you want. You can flip there or you can just, some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about when I mention one person's name, Zacchaeus, right? Even the kids in the room are like, I know Zacchaeus, you know? We love the story of Zacchaeus. Jesus in Luke 19 is heading into Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world, to put on full display what it really means that God is fully just and fully merciful and gracious at the same time. He's equally skilled in this. And this is what Jesus is doing when he goes in, is heading into Jerusalem. But he makes a stop along the way in Luke 19. And on this stop along the way, he has this spontaneous dinner with this really shady character named Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus, as you probably know, is this, he's the pariah of the town. He's this greedy tax collector that has horribly cheated people. And so people are not fond of him. And But during that dinner, that evening, and we don't know exactly, but something happened in that dinner, something mysterious, something strange, something miraculous happened during that dinner. And Zacchaeus gave up his former identity and he, he offered to walk a whole different path, right? He pulled a Rahab and he switched his identities and he said, switched his allegiances and he said, I'm in. I'm going to give. I'm going to give to the poor. I'm, 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 I'm going to give back fourfold. Everybody I defrauded, I'm going to pay it back. And that's when Jesus gave his famous line that many of you have heard. It's verse 9 and 10 of chapter 19. It says, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. But the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. But you know, in the middle of that, all that divine complexity and grace that, that Jesus is displaying, Luke tells us that people were outside grumbling, grumbling about it because they're simple-minded. And they were upset that he was going in to have dinner with a tax collector, a sinner. It's a wonderful story. We love it, right? We sing songs about Zacchaeus. You know it, of course. And if you do know it, do you remember what town Zacchaeus lived in? Jericho. It's in the first line of the story. Jericho. Now, after everything I've said, is that a happy coincidence? Or... Is it a divine declaration that God has been doing this tricky, subversive grace thing all along? But some of us continue to sit outside and grumble. I don't know. It's your decision. <laughs> Can't force you to decide and make it. You have to think it through yourself. But as we come to the table this morning... If we come to communion, we come to the Lord's Supper, as you come to think about and take a piece of the bread, 
that represents Jesus's body broken. And you take that bread and you dip it in the wine or the juice representing the blood of Jesus that's shed for us. I hope you're able to take a moment and evaluate your idea of God's grace. And be confounded. Let it make us more open to outsiders. Make us more open to saying, I don't, these lines I've been drawing of who are the good guys and good girls and good, you know, all of this stuff and these, these tribes that we create and these circles that we create and these simple categories that we create. Maybe it causes us to say, hey, I want to give pause to all of that and reflect that it is God's grace that I'm here and God uses who he wants and he moves in who he wants. And I want to be open to that and listen to what the spirit is leading, where he's leading. If you're new to the faith, I would encourage you to continue to ask questions. Come to us if, if you have those questions. Let us uh, try to answer those for you. Um, if you've got things in your life where I would say this, if you feel stuck but you believe, if, if you feel stuck but you still say, hey, I know Jesus is Lord and I'm trying to work it out, you're invited to come forward. The only thing that holds you back that we would say should hold you back in terms of coming forward is not stuckness but stubbornness. If you are in a place where you're like, I don't want Jesus and I, I don't need Jesus, then communion makes no sense for you. Otherwise, if there is genuine belief in you, you are welcome to come forward and take a piece of the bread and dip it in the wine or the juice. Let us pray. Father, as we finish up this morning and we continue to think and sing songs and praise your name. May we just let this, these words resonate with us as we leave. That the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And this is something that my mind and my heart needs to remember all the time. Not just because there are lost people out there, but, but because there's still sometimes moments where I still move towards being that lost son. And I need to remember to come back I need to remember to lay myself before you and say, without you, I am totally, completely lost and out of depth. And so by your spirit, open us up. Give us the eyes to see. Give us minds that can grasp what you're up to the way Rahab did. And the courage to do, what it, do what's next in front of us in a way that honors you. Help us as we sing out this morning. Let us leave with great conviction, but also with great peace. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.